Attack of the Final Girls is a podcast about the horror genre, so listener discretion is advised. Please check the show notes for specific content warnings for this episode, and of course, beware of spoilers. All right, so episode five, hey y'all, it's episode five, and today we are talking about Jordan Peele's directorial and horror debut, Get Out. It's awesome. <laughs> <laughs> That's it. That's the podcast. <laughs> All right. End of episode. And here's where you can... No, I'm just kidding. Um, uh, so it is starring Daniel Kaluuya as Chris Washington, Allison Williams uh, as Rose Armitage. She, this is her first horror movie. Um, Bradley Whitford as Dean Armitage, her dad, and Catherine Keener as Missy Armitage, her mom. Um, so yeah, we're talking about this um amazing film tonight i think this is the first time juliet and i have rewatched this since it came out back in 2017 yeah yeah i saw it right well we both saw it right when it came out in the theater um and i you know i wondered about watching it again like i know it's a great movie um Part of the reason we wanted to do this is that it just got yet another accolade. But you always wonder, um, it's kind of the hereditary syndrome, like, is it is it good on a rewatch? Yes. The answer is yes. <laughs> <laughs> I was also worried about that. Uh, sometimes when you leave a movie, you're like so struck by the movie, it just keeps echoing. And you're like, if I watch this again, is it going to be as good? Is it going to be as powerful? Or is something going to take away from it? Am I going to key into something I missed the first time and then it's just going to totally remove my fascination with it? For for the both of us, I think we both like ended the movie maybe not as surprising as the first time because I know the ending for me like was completely shocking when I saw it in the theater for a couple of reasons and I'll bring that up once we get to it. But watching it again and especially now four years in, so much has happened since 2017. The The world is just so... It's not... It, I mean, it is different, and we're also so much more aware of so many things that when you're watching it in 2021, you're like, wow, this movie is even more relevant. I, I mean, I think it was super relevant in 2017, but now in 2021, it's like, it just echoes. It's like, it's, it's, it's exponential, more exponentially more relatable and important, I think. So definitely. Um, I was interested in rewatching this, not just for the, does it still work on a second watch, but also because as I said, when we started watching this tonight at the time, everybody was wondering about Jordan Peele. Can he do this? You know, he was known back then as a comedian, as a great comedic writer and performer, um, somebody who had a self-professed love of the horror genre. But this was um, his directorial debut, number one, in any sort of feature film, but also his horror debut. And, you know, with somebody outside the genre who's so known for another genre, the question is always, can they hack it? Right. Um, Obviously, we know now he is one of the smartest best minds working in modern horror and so to watch it now through the lens of his body of work since then both um his film us his upcoming film nope and the films that he's produced Mm -hmm. 
is really fun and interesting to see, like, here's where this person started and, and to sort of see the through line of the themes and even some of the shots and the imagery in his work to today is, it's a really exciting thing. Oh, yeah, totally. Um, yeah, he, he was, uh, he was obviously Peel of Key and Peel prior to this. Mm-hmm. Um, tons of funny stuff, had their own Comedy Central show, um, I think some of those sketches are still hysterical, even now. Oh, yeah. I can go back and watch the steampunk one. <laughs> and uh, the substitute teacher where he's mispronouncing all the names. I can go back and watch those a thousand times. And they always make me feel good. But the we were talking about this, too, when we were watching it. The marketing around this movie did such a good job of burying the lead. Like, it didn't really give you much of an... There was not much of an um, a clue as to what exactly was going to happen. You just knew, here's a black dude. He's visiting his white girlfriend's family home. Fish out of water story, but something sinister happens. What is it? And that's basically the premise of the movie. A famous black photographer, Daniel Kaluuya, is leaving his home and going to visit his girlfriend's parents for the weekend. So not only is he staying for dinner, he's staying for the weekend. So he's uncomfortable. They don't know he's black. It's that she's like, oh, no, don't worry. They're, you know, they're liberal. It'll be fine. He would, my dad would have voted for Obama for a third time if he could have, you know. And so he gets there, but things are kind of off kilter, like from the rip. And there's a lot of really good jump scares in this one. I knew that they were coming and they still got me this time. So, yeah. but not, um, not so much that you are desensitized to them. It's kind of like sprinkled in a good way throughout. So, uh, but that's basically the premise of the movie. Uh, there were, there were a lot of things too that I had forgotten since the first one. Stuff that I probably remembered when we were watching it the first time, but could just kind of faded like in the beginning where the the guy his name's Andre well at that point in time his name's Andre and then he ends up coming back in the movie I had completely forgotten about the beginning of that I have no idea why but I had just totally spaced on that so it was it was uh it was nice to kind of refresh my memory and like remember all of the tricks and stuff in there so the thing that struck me right off the bat was the discomfort which you know, I remember it the first time I saw it, but in uh, 2022, in a post-George Floyd world, um, it strikes me as all the more interesting in the discomfort that this movie sets up of, um, number one, there aren't many, I'm not going to say there are none, but there aren't many horror films that set up um, a Black protagonist in such a way that a white audience is instantaneously aligned with this character that is so different than them. Yes. And yet are forced to, throughout the film numerous times, in ways that get more sinister throughout, but I think are just as sinister in the beginning for different reasons, are forced to face through this protagonist as a proxy um, the discomfort of their whiteness yes. and of the sort of well-intentioned white people. Oh my gosh, yes. It's, um, I mean, I know I recognize that when we first saw it, but it just, 
to me was just so glaring um, and in my face and uncomfortable in a in a way that's great, honestly, yeah. like that is so effective for a film yeah. and really just makes the film eternally relevant yeah. to my mind. It, and the way that it's portrayed is not in a way that makes it seem ham-handed or no. like overly done. It's like so relatable because you're like, I know that guy. I work with that guy. Mm-hmm. That guy's my uncle. Speaking specifically about the dad, um, yeah. the, uh, I think his name is Bradley Whitfield. He like he tries to code switch. He he keeps calling him. What does he call him, brother? My man. My man. He keeps mm-hmm. calling Daniel Kaluuya my man. He keeps saying that over and over again. And he talks about how his grandpa was beat by Jesse Owens, but oh, Jesse Owens is so great because he won uh, the Olympics in front of Hitler. And uh, he would have voted for Obama a third time. It's just like, he's laying it on so thick. It's just so, it's like, it's so obvious, especially if you're watching it now. It's so obvious that it's meant to be, he's like, oh, I'm well-intentioned. No, no, I am on your level. I know what you're talking about. Let me speak to you in a way that you understand. While simultaneously, you're Daniel Kaluuya and you're like, what? Yeah. People don't talk like this anymore. And also, you don't have to prove to me that you're a a friend to Black people. Just be a normal guy and not over the top about it. The interaction with the cop and Rose's behavior there, Mm -hmm. I, I don't remember it hitting me in the same way as it hit me now, where it's such misplaced allyship. Oh, yeah. That, to me, was just fascinating. Because because the dad... You know, right off the bat, you're like, oh, my God, dude, like, this guy's laying it on too thick. Mm -hmm. Um, But I think, um, yeah, the sort of performative allyship of Rose and that interaction with the cop um, where she's like, no, man, I'm I'm doing what's right. And he's kind of like, I don't want. It's that whole thing with allyship. Like, do you know, at what point do does an ally ask the person for whom they are standing up, like, what they want. Right. Um, I've, I've been doing a lot of reading and research for a variety of reasons about bystander intervention, and that's one of the newer schools of bystander intervention that was not, um, maybe wasn't even a part of the literature when this movie was made. Um, and I think this movie reflects, you know, a need for this, which is, Ask the person what they want, right. you know, when you're standing in solidarity or allyship with somebody like do they do they actually want you to, you know, do they want you to diffuse the situation? Do they just want somebody to stand with them? What what do they want? Right. Um, and that, you know performative allyship can sometimes actually cause more erasure. It's it that scene just really, really hit me in a way that it it didn't um the first time I saw it. Right. And it's clear that uh Chris just wants to hand over his ID yeah. and just get it over with. He the the cop, the police officer asks him for his ID and he pulls it out. I mean, hopefully that was not going to spiral into something, but it was clear to me, at least, that he just wanted to hand it over, say, cool, run my ID, whatever, let's get this over with. But maybe another layer, and I don't know if he meant to do this, but it could also have been Rose trying not to leave a paper trail. 
Like, I don't want the cop right. to run his ID because I don't want anybody to know that he's here, except I mean, for his friend. I think it works both ways. Yeah. I think that, yeah, it absolutely could have been because she didn't want a paper trail. Um, so she performed allyship to to cover her tracks, which is which is really cool that, I mean, that's so much of this movie is that um, the behavior of the white people very specifically works both ways. Right. It works um, on a very practical, real world level, um, a very relatable level. And then it also works to further the story of the film, right. which is so much more complicated. Right. Than- it's like sinister. It's yeah. like there's yeah. always double there's always a, a two levels of interaction with any of the white folks there. Yeah. And like as we progress through the movie, it gets it compounds. It's even more so. And maybe it resonates more because this is our second watch through. So we've seen the movie two times. The first time maybe we didn't understand as much because the the ending is fairly I would say fairly well wrapped. Like mm-hmm. the the part where Chris initially gets hypnotized by Rose's mom, uh, Missy, and sinks through the floor. I remember sitting in the theater and thinking, hang on, what am I watching? Like, right. what is happening? Right. <laughs> when he goes into the... The sunken place. Sunken place. I'm like, wait, 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 what? This is sci-fi? What's happening? Is this a supernatural thing? Is he dead? And then, um, as we're watching it the second time... In the party where we've got all of these older folks and the Armitage's friends, I guess, or cohorts, I guess, part of the society or group that they're in, the interactions that they're having with Chris are, like, so much more loaded. Because oh, yeah. at first, the the first watch through, you can watch this movie and think, these are all, all old white people who have never been around a black guy, and they're surrounding him, and they don't know how to act. And then you realize upon second watch, it's not just that they're sizing him up. They're literally at like an auction. They're sizing him up like an animal because they're going to try and purchase his body. Yeah. And it's just like the the first time, you know, you're watching, there's this old lady who's just like feeling his muscles and she's like, oh, it's so, so good. So nice. Then you watch it again and you're like, oh, my God, she is trying to determine if she wants to purchase this this guy. And I guess the first time I watched it, I was like thinking less about the the purchasing aspect of it as I was like, oh, she's just admiring him because she's weird. No, it's so much darker and deeper and and reflective of like slave ownership it's like yeah. it's like ownership uh, of somebody it's literal ownership of somebody's body and i it didn't connect the first time but then so watching it again i'm just like it was amplified and it made me feel so uncomfortable just like ugh, just watching somebody manhandle somebody else like that gross yeah and the whole the whole concept that um you know throughout the history of the United States and, and as reflected in this film, you know, black bodies were commodities and they were commodities absent of personhood. And we really, really get that in this, especially when we get toward the end, toward the, the sort of end result of this whole 
purchasing of this body, which is to transfer uh, a white person's consciousness into this black body. And, and they refer to, you know, um, you know, I'll be controlling your body and you'll just be a passenger. And that is so powerful on yeah. so many levels um, to, to sort of bring that concept into, into horror in a way that I think I know I know Jordan Peele has has really said, you know, that this and many of his films and I want to be really careful with this phrase because I know it's gotten taken out of context. Um he said it in in the horror noir documentary, which I highly recommend. It's on Shudder. Um he said that, you know, he didn't make get out for white people and People have taken that out of context and said, oh, this, that, and the other. But I choose to think, you know, he made something truly horrific and identifiable for a Black audience that a white audience could certainly benefit and learn from and understand. Yeah. And I think that scene really um, lends some perspective yeah. To an experience that is so very different from, you know, from my own, certainly. Right. Yeah. He said in an interview that it's, this is basically a chain of his worst nightmares all mm-hmm. in a row. And like so many of these things, so many of the occurrences that happen in the movie seem kind of like offhanded or passive. Like to me, I thought that it was pretty obvious from early on, like, especially right when they had gotten to the parents' house, the Armitage home, that he was there as the token guy. Yeah. Like, look how progressive we are. Our daughter is dating a black man. Mm-hmm. And let's just kind of parade him around. And that way everybody knows how woke and left we are. And it kind of started to make me think, I'm sure I'm not the only person who has thought this about this movie, but how the woke left can be so harmful to its own cause and to, to people of color and marginalized groups, especially when we're like, no, no, we'll protect you. Right. When the left says we'll protect you. I know we're getting kind of political on this, but I think this is a movie that is specifically made to resonate as something that's not even political, but more just about like humanity. And I think that's, what we're seeing there is like people, especially white people who say, no, no, let me help you without like what you were talking about earlier, not asking, just doing well. And, and centering, centering themselves still. Like when, when you take that position, you're saying rather, rather than saying, I recognize my privilege as a white person and I am offering to use that privilege to assist in whatever way you feel is appropriate, but I'm giving you the agency to make that choice, whether or not you want my help. Right. It's still centering yourself and saying, I'm a, I'm a white person. I know what's best for you. You know, there's right. still a, a huge condescension there. Right. Um, and, and we see that so many times in this right. film. Yeah. It's tough to, it's to even cut like I almost feel like I don't have the the chops to even comment on this because it's just so perfectly executed. At least mm-hmm. in my opinion, it's so perfectly executed. As a white person watching this movie, I'm thinking, "Oh my god, 
I, I'm thinking like back in time, how have I done these things? Right. Like how, right. how have, has my, uh, assistance, I'm using air quotes, assistance of somebody or, uh, when I think I'm helping actually harmed somebody or made them feel less than or othered them in, in some way. I'm like thinking about every interaction I've ever had. And I'm just like, oh my God, this is making me feel so uncomfortable because I'm, I'm having to like face situations where I'm like, was I really harming somebody rather than helping them? And uh, obviously not being able to fully put myself in Chris's shoes, but also like watching all of these interactions where I'm just like every single time Chris is interacting with somebody who's not his friend Rod, you're like, like your stomach clenches into a fist. You're just like, this is, oh, this, especially the brother, the weird brother, the Armitage brother. Oh my God. The, I don't know what it is with that guy. He is ultimate creep. I found that character so fascinating. Oh, my God. Um, he's really interesting to me because he works on several different levels. It's interesting to see him put up against the rest of the family because on the one hand, um, especially if you're watching this movie for the first time and you don't know exactly what's going on yet, the brother seems like the most obvious villain. Mm-hmm, and, right. and the interesting thing is, he is the most obvious villain, but he's not the villain. Right. Or the only villain. And I think his place in this film is just so interesting because he is in a movie that generally avoids the very typical overt racist stereotypes. Like, mm-hmm. we don't see... Southern folks, you know, right. people people coded as being from the American South. We don't see Confederate flags. We don't see any clan iconography. And I and I applaud the the deliberateness in doing that in right. showing us that, you know, deep down we all carry a lot of a lot of racism and white supremacy. Right. The brother character was really fascinating because he was the character that I think on first watch, especially, it's really easy to start to say, oh, well, he's the bad guy. Right. He's the weird one. Yeah. He's the drunk one. He's the one making the most overt comments. Yeah. And then you realize, oh, yeah, he's he's a bad guy. But the people that behave more like, you know, more like we do from day to day are just as bad, if not, in this case, much, much worse. Right. Um, and I really, I liked that, having that character there to sort of um, lull us into a false sense of security in seeing seeing the villain as someone perhaps other than ourselves right. initially. Oh, yeah. He is, from the time he comes onto screen and then almost every time afterwards, he's like carrying something. He made my skin crawl, but you're so right. He is a bad guy and definitely the person easiest to, like, pin stuff on because he makes very odd comments. He's talking about Chris's uh, physicality and you're like, wow, okay. But now that we're talking about this, I kind of want to switch gears a little bit and and talk about language. Because this movie is so good about subtly shifting the language as we go along and it's beautifully done. And as I'm watching it the second time, I'm like picking up on all these little things like what we were talking about initially, uh, the deer speech that Rose's dad is giving. Okay, so they hit a deer on the way, which I think is supposed to be 
like Chris going back to his mom. It's kind of like imagery of him since his mom had a hit, there was a hit and run. And I think that's why it kind of bothers him and puts him off kilter a little bit. Um, at the beginning, there's a jump scare. It's great. Uh, they hit a deer. They're able to drive all the way there. Once they get to the house, Rose tells her dad, Hey, we hit a deer. It sucked. It knocked off the mirror. Well, he gives him this whole speech about how we'd be all be better off if there weren't as many deer. Every time I see one laying on the road, I'm like, yes, one less one. They eat all of our crops and they, and they're such a drain on our ecosystems. And I'm talking to Juliet. I'm like, this sounds exactly like a racist person. You yeah. literally only have to change what you're talking about. And it's exactly like a racist tirade. And I didn't catch that the first time because, but then I'm thinking Jordan Peele never wastes any words. There's no wasted words in his movies. There's no inane conversations. There's no um, just talking out of your butt. You know, it's just, everything has a purpose. And I think that purpose was so clear when he's talking about that. It it was like chilling because he's just talking about in this lighthearted way about deer. And you're just like, okay, why are you going on about deer? And then you're like, oh, wait, no, that's not what it is. This is clearly him. I don't know if it's him doing it, but it's it's very obvious. Like, you can say something and say it in so many words, but that's not necessarily what you mean, mm-hmm. if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. The other thing is, white people in this movie are not lit- reading into what people are saying. And... Chris is very much reading into what people are saying. And he keeps repeating that over and over again. In the case of uh, Georgina and Walter. It's obvious to us because we're watching the movie. These people are not talking like human beings. Not human beings from our time anyways. But Chris keeps saying the way that they are talking is not right. People don't talk like this. Not only do people not talk like this, he is clearly... In, an ex- in expectation of when he, as a black man, goes to them and speaks to them, he expects a certain way that they're going to speak to him in return. And instead, they talk like robots. And so he says over and over again, the way that they're talking, it's not just what they're saying, it's the way that they're saying it. And these white people have no idea. They're just like, what? And like, once we find out that clearly it's white person consciousness inside these black bodies, now we know, okay, that's why the way that they're saying these things is so weird is because they don't have any idea. They're just completely that they're just like, Oh, well I am black. So clearly I am able to talk to you. And that's not the case. And I love that. It's made clear to me that that's why language is so important in these movies. It's like in Jordan Peele's movies is it's not just what you say, it's how you say it. And I love that Chris keys onto that. And he tells his friend Rod about it. And Rod's like, no, you're right. Those white people have these people in sex slave dungeons, and <laughs> which is hysterical. I love his friend Rod. I love that he's like an Ahab uh, in this, like, he is the one guiding, you know, he is the omniscient, like, I have everything put together, even though it's wrong. But he's like the omniscient. But I just love that language is so important. And people, like, all of the white folks in this film are just like, whatever, I don't know what you're talking about. They don't see it as strange that Georgina and Walter talk like this. They talk like 
robot aliens. Like, initially, that's what I thought was happening, was, like, aliens were possessing these folks. Yeah, you wondered if they were being possessed or if um, if it were, like, an antebellum situation where they were somehow, like, channeling some kind of obedience or affect from... um, a time gone by um, where they were sort of channeling the, the necessary affect of survival of enslaved people. Right. Um, there, there were so many, so many different things that could have been happening with that, but immediately Chris knows. And then by proxy, the audience knows something is wrong here. Yeah. And in terms of Jordan Peele and language, I mean, we should say that, you know, we had we had actually already planned to do this for this episode, but um, just a couple of weeks ago, the screenplay got uh, honored by the Writers Guild of America. They created a list of 101 greatest screenplays of the 21st century so far, and Get Out uh, was number one. Yeah, it's honestly kind of a masterpiece of language. Yeah, because like I said before, there's no word spared in this, and it makes you, how do I say this? Chris's character is so keyed into what everybody is saying. And I think, I don't necessarily want to say I know this, but I think as a person of color, you have to be so much more aware of word choice and not only listening to what people around you are saying and determining, is this real? Is this fake? Are they lying? Are they just placating me? But also what you yourself are saying. Like, what am I saying to them? What are they perceiving I am saying? And it's a very powerful feeling when you are also just as off kilter. When you're hearing what they're saying, but you know that something isn't right. Mm -hmm. So I I wrote that down as like something that was resonated very much with me. I have a tendency to read into what people say way too much or like I'll send a text message and then read it like 15 times. Like, is this rude? They didn't respond to me, but I know that they saw my message. Is this, you know, are they mad at me? Did I say something wrong? So I can see like how stressed out he was over this. So I I don't know. I think that that is like a very powerful message in the movie. Absolutely. And to have that become then a racialized experience, to have that anxiety of speech and language um, then be so racialized as we see in Chris's experience is is all the more powerful. And again, it's dangerous to make this film the the end all be all right. uh, for white folks. But I think it is a very it's a very powerful experience to watch this film and to allow this filmmaker and this character to do what movies do best, which is to allow us to experience something or step into someone else's shoes, if just for the two hours that we're watching it, and to then take that experience. And hopefully, the result of that is, then we go off and learn more on our own and and do the work that's associated with that. That's the danger is just say, well, I saw Get Out and I, I understand racism. Like, no, no, you don't. Um, That is a lifelong journey. But I think that um, for many people, this can be an important key or door to open to start that 
journey or continue that journey or work. Yeah. After I watched it the first time, I'm like, yes, I get it. But watching it the second time and really closely too. I mean, we saw it in the theater the first time, so I was watching it closely then, but kind of watching it a little bit more, I don't want to say critically, but paying closer attention um, this second time. I'm seeing so many things I didn't see the first time. And so many things, like, now that we're talking about it back and forth, I'm just like, wow, this is, it's truly powerful. There's so many things to honestly learn and to read into and think critically about. So this is something where it's probably a good idea, even if you've already seen the movie, give it another watch, pay close attention, because... I'm sure that you are going to see something that you missed the first time because I know that I have multiple times over. Um, I want to like I want to go and talk about the symbolism a little bit before I get to the end. I do have some things to say about um, a particular scene in the imagery. Actually, go for it. Let's okay. let's hear it. Well, this this one is less symbolic and right out in the open, but I thought was very special which is the actual scene with the operating theater Mm -hmm. when the transfer was about to happen. And this is another thing that I think the first time I saw it, I was just so swept up in the what is happening of it all that I didn't fully appreciate what a beautiful nod it was to all of the classic horror films. You know, it's Son of Frankenstein, it's Metropolis, it's all of the mad scientist films, um, and those two movies very specifically are early horror films that, you know, the Frankenstein story, of course, and Fritz Lang's Metropolis, which, you know, some of my favorite writing in film school was on Fritz Lang and science fiction and horror as a reflection of German society right. <laughs> at the turn of the century. But um, what a beautiful nod to classic horror, which I know Jordan Peele is a fan of, you know, as a as a professed fan of this genre and what a beautiful nod to some of the horror that does what in my opinion horror does at its best which is to shed a light or or reflect a mirror on what's happening in society to use um scary and fantastical things to make us look at ourselves in a different way so i just i really loved and appreciated that um in a way that i didn't the first time because i was too busy going oh my god what's happening right (laughs) yeah i mean you're you're in an operating theater and maybe you're not noticing these details but there are pillar candles Mm -hmm. there's a special specific box that has all of his operating tools in it which uh, like you might the first time you're like that's weird like the candles are candlelight is clearly not the best light for an operation (laughs) especially not one as supposedly delicate as this one transferring consciousness from one person to another but then you start to think these are candles in in a theater, in an operating theater. Not only do we have those candles, but we we have almost a ritualistic box. It seems very, uh, very much like a ritual, mm-hmm. um, more more so a ritual than like a uh, a surgery. What what is it that you called it? It was science and uh, part uh, science. Oh, part science, part black magic. Yes, yes, it, it certainly feels like that, and. It does feel a little bit Italian. I don't know if it's just me, but tools in Italian mm. horror films, I think, are are pretty 
I think it's pretty common to feature those. Like the killer has black gloves. The killer has his uh-huh. tools. They're 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 set in their own certain way. So I kind of got that from the um from the uh, the surgery scene because you're like surg- surgical tools are typically not transferred in uh, velvet boxes. I'm I'm not sure that that's very antibacterial. Uh, pretty much they're they're on like you know, those stainless steel trays with like the little weird disposable napkin thing. But in this one, it seems very deliberate to do it like that. Oh, yeah. Yeah. It's interesting that you went Italian because I went straight up classic monster. You know, I, for me, it was, it was Frankenstein. Yeah. It's always, um, whether we're talking universal or hammer, it's always, you know, uh, Dr. Frankenstein or Dr. Pretorius in a lab that is a lab, but is also very gothic and very yes. creepy. And there are surgical tools alongside candles. And yeah. it's got a very occult feel to it, even if it is pure science or medicine. So I, I went immediately to the classics, but I see the Italian um, yeah. influence there as well. I mean, it's it's really small, but I, I was reading through the trivia as we were watching this. And there are so many nods to so many films throughout yes. this. I couldn't even absorb it all because I'm just like, this is too much. <laughs> well, I can't believe that the first time I saw it, I missed the straight up, like, the poltergeist. Right? Yeah. You know, like, yeah. the, the TV and the, the you know, he, as a child, is watching the TV. We see him almost in shadow in front of that blue glow of the, like, yeah. that's poltergeist straight up. And it's beautiful. Yeah. The beginning of the movie, straight up Halloween. Yep. It's an yes. idyllic city. He's walking past these hedges. You've got a, a creepy car following him. It's straight up Halloween. It's yeah. it's directly from that. But it's offset in just enough of a way that you, you don't really catch on to it until maybe you're watching it the second time or maybe later when you're reflecting like, hmm, what does that look like? What do, what do I remember that from? All of this symbolism is just like, yes, I it makes you feel at home, but also like completely makes you feel uncomfortable because you're like, I know this thing, but I don't know this thing. I absolutely love that. I did want to talk about their clothes. Yes. Um, yeah. There's a lot happening there. So much. I, I wrote down all of the things that I can even remember, but I'm sure that you can remember more. So... All of the white folks in this movie are wearing black, white, red, or a combination of those, or brown. So when they first meet, you had brought up earlier, the dad is wearing a black sweater. Later on in the movie, when uh, Chris goes outside to smoke, and then when he comes back inside, the mom kind of assails him and is like, let's do hypnosis. She's wearing a white, like a a tunic almost. Chris is wearing all gray. And a gray hoodie, which... Yeah. Yeah. The symbolism there, just... And he wears gray throughout the whole movie. Mm-hmm. There's, um... He's wearing, like, the denim shirt with the gray shirt underneath. So that's, like, his common thread, is the gray. Then at the party, everybody's wearing black, white, and red. The The parents are wearing brown. Like, her mom's wearing, like, a brown dress, shirt dress, and her dad's wearing a brown jacket, but he's wearing a black turtleneck underneath with a red, um... What is that called? Like a pocket square? Yeah, red pocket square. And then you see Stephen Rood's character, the blind man. He's wearing all black. You see uh, Andre's character. What did he say his name was? Logan. Logan. Okay. He's wearing, like, completely 
it, he's wearing an outfit that does not match anybody else's outfit. He's wearing a button-down shirt, a brown suit jacket, a straw hat, which, like, who wears... People don't wear straw hats now. Who wears a straw hat? But everybody else, including the woman that he's with, is wearing black, white, and red. It didn't stick out to me the first time I'm watching, but obviously I'm trying to watch it more carefully. It has to be significant that everybody is wearing black, white, and red. Absolutely. Well, and... um. Georgina is seen in a lot of gray and a lot of muted colors. Walter is seen in more muted colors. And Rod and Chris are almost always wearing blue. Yeah. Okay. That makes sense then. Yeah. So it seems deliberate. Like the, the, the outfit choices seem deliberate because it can't just be coincidence. So I'm, I'm interested. I wonder what, his idea was there. Was it just to group people together? Like, we're grouping these people. These people clearly have sinister intentions. These people do not. Is it that? Or is there something deeper there having black, white, and red on the white folks? Gray on Georgina, who seems to be, at certain points, struggle with uh, the presence inside of her. Um Chris, normally wearing gray and blue. Um, I think he's wearing like a blue sweater or a blue jacket and gray shirt at the beginning. Um, Is there something more to that? Another thing um, with color is I can't remember what Rose is wearing at the beginning, but as things progress, Rose initially at the party is wearing a sweater that's red and gray stripes. Then after they're able to kind of subdue Chris and get him down into the basement, she's wearing a white turtleneck. And then later she's wearing a white button down. And it seems weird that you would change your clothes two separate times in the same evening. If all you're going to do is wait for your, you know, wait for your dad to successfully transfer the consciousness of an old man into your former boyfriend's brain why would you change your clothes two times? It has to be, there has to be something there mm-hmm. in clothing choice. I will be interested to see because, you know, color is also very important in us. Right. Uh, the use of red throughout right. is, is huge. And I'm going to be really curious to see in Jordan Peele's next movie, Nope, uh, to see how color, especially red, is used in that movie too. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Because I think... I think he's got some theming there. I don't have it all figured out, but I think there's something there. It's exciting to me because watching this a second time, too, I could see more of his patterns as a filmmaker. And I'm so excited to see the new one to see how those change and evolve, you know, everything from using underground spaces to some of the lighting shots to some of the way he did some of his tracking shots, like the way the camera would move. I noticed some affinities between Get Out and Us. And I'm just really excited to see when you have a filmmaker of this caliber to see how they take these stylistic elements and change them and evolve them throughout their career and use them in different stories is, is exciting. I think for an audience. Totally. Yeah. We talked a little bit about how he uses underground. Yeah. Uh, It's very deliberate. I think 
So in Us, it's a little bit more obvious. I don't want to go too far into that one in case we feature it later. But there is a very, very, very important thing happening underground in Us. And sort of a kept away, secret, kind of closed off thing that's happening there. And it's the same thing here. And we have this big underground... um, look like a rec room almost where he was like seated in front of the TV. But then we also have a surgical theater. We have the hidden, we have the, we don't want you to know about this place in the basement. So I will be interested to see in Nope if he continues to use that kind of underground, maybe even more metaphorically versus uh, literal, but either way, it's very clear. Like when you're underground, this is clearly a secret place. It's almost a, like a secret cult, like, what's that called? Clubhouse, not clubhouse, but like meeting place or whatever. Headquarters, that's what I was looking for. And it's kind of the same in us. So I love that uh, imagery, though. Is It's literal because it's actually literally hidden, but it's also when they talk about when um, Chris goes under hypnosis and he goes to the sunken place, like we're almost literally in a sunken place. Yeah. So that that's really cool. I liked um I I definitely enjoy the the symbolism and uh, like what you said before, having something kind of go through different iterations. A filmmaker using something successfully multiple times in different ways is always really satisfying. Uh another symbology thing. Rabbits. Yeah. Although we love the podcast. <laughs> um, we like rabbits. <laughs> In general and specifically. (laughs) All the rabbits. (laughs) At the very beginning of the movie, when Andre is being kidnapped by... I I think we're kind of led to believe that it's the son that's doing it. Is he the one that has the crazy white car? I think so. I think so. I think it's the combination of the car and the weird helmet thing. Yeah, like mask. It's like a leather knight's helmet. It's very strange. Yeah. But it's almost off-putting because you don't see until much, much later how that actually relates to the movie. And I had forgotten that that was a thing. But he's playing that song, Run, Rabbit, Run, very loudly in the car. And rabbits are a thing that comes back into us, like, pretty prominently. And there's so much more symbolism in us, which is why I was like, let's just do Get Out. Because us, I feel like we could go down a rabbit hole. (laughs) A rabbit hole for, like... (laughs) a while on that movie because there's just so much to talk about. There's so much symbology. But in this one particularly, I love that it's foreshadowing for the rest of this movie, but it's also something that he is using in other movies. It's another cool uh, thing. Let's see if he uses a rabbit in Nope. At least one. Um, I also wanted to talk about Betty Gabriel. That's the actress who played Georgina. She's so fantastic. Why haven't we seen more of her? Uh, Maybe I just haven't been looking, but to have the range to within 30 seconds go from smiling to crying to smiling and crying at the same time, I was like, where, what did you summon? Where did you have to go to be able to do that? Because holy cow, you see it in the trailer, which is, I wish that they wouldn't have shown that in the trailer because... It's so powerful. Maybe, maybe, I don't know. Maybe he thought people would still resonate with it um, when they saw it in the movie. But I wrote down a specific note about her. Betty Gabriel, holy cow, just absolutely phenomenal. 
I've never seen somebody go from smiling to crying to smiling again so quickly. And she does a decent amount of horror. I mean, she was in The Purge election year, my favorite of The Purge movies. Um, She played Lainey, which is a very different character. I mean, she was kind of a total badass in that movie. Man, I don't remember that. But I I don't remember a lot of The Purge movies. I need to rewatch them. That's my... (laughs) favorite purge movie so i know that one like the back of my hand is that the second one third one oh okay yeah and i think i missed the second and the third one so that's why i don't know oh we should okay note note for later (laughs) okay (laughs) but um she was also in jordan peele's twilight zone um and i'm hoping she is in some other upcoming horror films as well um and she was in westworld she was a recurring character oh. on Westworld. So I hope we get to see more of her because she's a phenomenal actress yeah. and just really um, even just the range between her character in Get Out and her character in The Purge Election Year. I'm like, I want to see her doing many different characters because she is obviously capable of taking on many different types of roles. Yeah. I mean, everybody in this movie, there's not a single bad actor in the movie, but um, there's a scene where Chris tells her, like, uh, she comes in to apologize about unplugging Chris's phone because it's pretty deliberate that Chris's phone is meant to have died because they don't want him to have a lifeline to the outside world. Well, she comes in to apologize and he mentions to her that he gets nervous when there's too many white people around. And she's a person who... During the entire movie, she's had this facade that's only cracked a couple of times between, like, this scene and the beginning of the movie. She's, like, got this plastered on smile. She is, like, completely on the same tone the entire time. But he sees her a couple of times with, like, a different facade, you know, or, or like, that facade has kind of slipped. Like, when he sees her up in the window she and she's startled, uh, when he sees her at night... And she's just kind of, like, dead-faced. And then she's, like, you know, doing her hair and the reflection on the on the glass window. Um, she moves very eerily, too. It, like, she moves very quickly. It's kind of weird. Was she doing her hair? Or was she toying with the scar oh, that we don't see right. at the end because it's covered with the wig? You're right. Yes. Yep. She comes in to apologize and he says that line. And then it, it's like life comes back into her. It's like a Stepford wife thing. She's like programmed and then life comes back into her. And then you can see she does such a good job of being able to see the white person inside of her taking back control of her brain. And so she's crying, but she's also saying no over and over and over again and like smiling and and she's got that control and it's like you can clearly see that happening you can see her lose control the real woman come back into her body and then the white lady take back over her brain it's very very powerful just it's just like 30 seconds maybe even less and it's like dang how did you do that (laughs) yeah yeah and i think the clip of that that we got in the trailer is kind of the clip that everybody knows from this movie. But knowing the context of it makes it just all the more powerful. Um, And just the acting involved in that is 
yeah. phenomenal. Her facial work, like mm-hmm. the being able to control, because you only see her face. You don't yeah. see any other part of her body. You can't see her body language. You can't see her shoulders, her hands, anything. Just her face. And just like her mus- muscle work in her face is just, it conveys so much in just so little. It's It's very, very, very powerful. I wonder how many takes that took. And like I said, I wonder where she had to go to get to that because holy cow. Yeah. I could not do that myself. I'm not much of an actress. That's why I stay on this side of the <laughs> of the TV screen. But yeah. Um, I also wanted to give a shout out to the actor who played Rod Williams, um, Chris's best friend. His name is Lil Rel Howery. He's hilarious. He is a much needed <laughs> comic relief mm-hmm. if for a movie that could otherwise have been very serious. Well, and I do want to talk about that character a little bit because both in his performance and in the writing, the comic relief character can be such a tricky thing in a horror film. Um, And we see very specifically this type of character in a lot of other films that were contemporaries of Get Out. And I'm thinking real specifically, and I can't believe I'm going to talk about this movie because I hate it, but um, Tusk. (laughs) There is a character very, very similar who is the best friend character who is sort of communicating with the protagonist who's off on this kind of sinister journey and who is sort of calling their bluff and saying, hey, something's not right here. Something's going on. Mm -hmm. And then has to kind of be the person who then comes in to provide the assist to the protagonist. Right. And among its many flaws, (laughs) that character, to me, in Tusk was such a failure because the comedy overshadowed the character's importance and the role, and it was a distraction and not a relief. But Rod is just a perfect example of this done right, that the comedy was always a moment of relief from the discomfort and from the horror, the character was useful. They weren't just there to crack jokes. They had a very important use to the plot and to the other characters. And the character was written to be serious when they needed to be and accomplishing things when they needed to be and not just cracking jokes for the sake of cracking jokes. So I I really, I love and appreciate that character for... The way that he was written and the fact that he was useful yeah. <laughs> and not just, you know, here's somebody to make jokes. Right. I mean, we do need those breaks. Like, it's 100% necessary to have these kind of comic breaks in there. It serves two purposes. We have comic relief breaks and almost every time it's Rod contacting Chris or they're communicating in some way. Or it's Rod going and trying to tell people what they don't want to hear or what they won't believe. Which is really, really funny because Rod has got this pinned that it's going to be this crazy sex cult. That these white people are abducting black people and turning them into sex slaves. Which is funny, but also, like, if you're looking at what's actually happening in the movie, what's more realistic? Right, yeah. (laughs) What he's saying is actually more realistic than what is actually happening. But he is hysterical. I read that most of his lines are completely improvised. 
So that makes it even more funny that it's just like it, it, he's cracking back and forth with him. And it is the the one time where Chris is able to be himself yeah. with another person. Yeah. Not even with his girlfriend does he ever really let his guard down. Like from the get, from the first interaction that you have with him and Rose, his guard's up. Because he's oh, like, yeah. I'm going to visit your white family with all these other white people. And he is never comfortable unless he's talking to Rod. It's such a cool dynamic because you get you actually get to see like him with his guard down a little bit, with Chris with his guard down, because every other interaction that he has with another person in the movie, he is on, except for when he's like reaching out to Walter and reaching out to Georgina and reaching out to Andre, now Logan. He's reaching out to them and trying to build a bridge, like... I know that you're surrounded by white people all the time, but we can talk. You don't have to be on like you are with them. And so I think that's why it's so jarring that he, that when they don't return the, there's no reciprocity and they're like, he's feeling comfortable, but they are still clearly not. It's another example of him using language like so effectively. But yeah, I, I love Rod's character. I think he's hilarious. He's been in some other stuff, but as far as I know, not anything like this particularly. That is an example of using the comic relief character as the hero in a movie effectively and not like as a campy afterthought. Yeah. Before we talk about the end, though, do you have anything else you want to bring up before I roll on? Go ahead. Okay. Well, what I want to talk about is... First time I watched this movie in the theater, we're towards the end. You can tell that we're getting close because Chris has mortally wounded uh, Georgina. He (laughs) hit her with a car. Then he's like, I can't leave her behind. Throws her in the car. They drive away. Georgina wakes up, but she's white lady Georgina. Runs the car into a tree. She's dead. Well, Walter runs after Chris and then Rose catches up to them. I guess I'm doing a play-by-play, but I don't mean to do that. Anyways... Rose ends up being on the ground. She's dying. She tells Chris that she loves him, but he is, he's getting ready to choke her. And you think this is it. He's going to strangle her to death. And then you see police lights. And when I saw this movie in the theater, I almost cried. Like I was so surprised. I almost cried. I was like, this is the real horror of this movie. It doesn't matter how many freaking white people are in, are in this town. How many, how, uh, like how many of them want his body for themselves? This is the true terror of the movie. Your heart freaking stops because you're like, this is it. Even seeing it a second time, like I knew he gets out of this, and yeah. I felt my heart dropped into my stomach yeah. when I saw that. I was like, oh god, like, yeah, here we go. Yeah, it's the true. It's, it's the real horror. The of true this movie. horror. Yeah, it doesn't matter. He's about to get his brain swapped with right. with right. with an old blind guy, but even as somebody who has not lived this experience, has not ever had a situation where I'm afraid of a police officer, that is what gets you. You're like, okay, this is it. It doesn't matter how, and it's a good way to to bring it all full circle because we have that uncomfortable interaction with the police officer at the beginning of the movie. And then we have this at the end, and you're thinking, this guy almost had his brain swapped out, 
And what he's going to go down for and what is going to be his downfall is the fact that it looks like he was about to strangle this girl to death and he's covered in blood and there's a bunch of dead bodies around. And you like, it's just like, wow, this is, this is the true terror of this movie. It doesn't, all of the stuff that has happened before, well, amazing. And we've just gone on and on about how good it is. So effective, such a misdirect. It's just and and it brings it brings you right back into real life, which like mm-hmm. what an effective move in a horror movie. We're we're taken out of real world. There's hypnosis. There's body switching. There's uh, control, and then you're brought right back into real life, just like that, just like a snap. Nope. Now we're back into real life, and Chris is gonna go down for this. It's really fascinating the way they bring you right back into the real world because so often we're brought back into the real world when the credits roll. Right. You know, that's that's the moment where the illusion is broken and we're brought back into reality. But the way this this film brings you back to the reality and the horrors of reality within the final moments of the film is just absolutely brilliant and so effective and... They don't have to say anything about it. All it takes is those blue lights. Yeah. And you know. Yeah. And you are terrified. Yeah. You're terrified for him. Because you're you're scrambling to think, how could he possibly, how could he possibly explain this? A bunch of dead bodies, a house on fire, a bunch of dead bodies back there. Uh, Dude with his brain cap taken off, (laughs) like in the basement. Um Death by bocce ball, or I guess concussion by bocce ball. I've read that that was actually initially the end, was Chris was going to be handcuffed. It was going to be an actual police officer, and Chris was going to be handcuffed and taken away. But when he tested that, obviously, audiences were like, no, 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 that's too dark. I don't know, though. I I mean, I, I guess, like, now knowing what the film ending is, what the theatrical ending of this movie is... I love it because Rod gets his final last word, like, I told you so, you know, type thing. I told you not to go to the white lady's house, like, um, the white family's house. I, I don't know whether or not it's more effective to pull the punch and say, like, actually, it's Rod saving you. Because I love that. Mm -hmm. But I don't know if I would have, like, thrown something in the theater, not out of being mad, like, because the movie was bad, but being mad on the behalf of a character. And how many times can you say that at the end of a movie? Like, if that movie had had a different ending, if it had had the originally attended ending, how many times would you have been so mad at the end of a movie on behalf of a character that you would have wanted to throw something? Yeah. You know, I I think about... On the one hand, the stark reality of making, you know, of of the original choice to have him handcuffed is really effective and really hammers the point home about the real world horrors um, that that black people and people of color face. On the other hand, I'm almost grateful that he didn't make that choice. And I say this from a place of immense privilege because I don't think I could have watched the movie again. Right. I think that would have had to have been a one-time watch. Um, whereas um, with a character that I went on this journey with, um, to know that this character survives, um, 
I'm happy to watch this movie again and to learn from it again. I don't know that I would have wanted to watch it again and have gotten so much out of it and um, to want to watch it again now. Like we're talking about, I'm already like, I want to watch it (laughs) Uh, because there's so much more to think about and to see in this film. Um, I don't know if I would have done it so readily yeah um knowing you know that that ultimately after going on this journey this this character was going to die at the hands of police yeah um yeah (laughs) it's nice to see the good guy win sometimes it is it really is and now that i'm thinking about it because i was thinking about like uh, how how is he going to get away with this right because there's a lot of questions that somebody would have to answer On the one hand, uh, so I try not to think about it too hard. Just, like, suspend your disbelief. Let the movie end where it ends. Don't wonder too much about it. I don't think you're supposed to. But on the other hand, there's no paper trail. Rose saw to it that there's no paper trail. So maybe he gets away. Maybe he and Rod, Chris and Rod, just drive away. And they're like, all right, let's just pretend like nothing happened. Mm -hmm. Because I would imagine that Rose, as we find out in the movie, she's a serial lure of black people and people of color uh because georgina was one of her conquests she serially lures these people in she can't be leaving much of a paper trail at all right right. because clearly people are gonna be like hey how come all of your boyfriends and girlfriends are disappearing and never to be seen again after they go and visit your parents house so i think that she probably did not... Who Is Rose even her real name? Who knows? I wondered that too. Yeah. Also, I think there's a little bit of symbolism in her just uh, drinking white milk. She's eating the Fruit Loops, which I thought was supposed to be... Uh, maybe this is me reading it too far into it, but maybe separating color oh, from white. Yeah. Yeah. That's why she doesn't mix the Fruit Loops and the milk mm-hmm. together. That uh, might be a stretch, but... I still want to know why she changed shirts so many times. It's weird. <laughs> like, why are you wearing a white turtleneck and then a white button down? Yeah. There has to be something there. Mm-hmm. And I think her hair is different, too. I'm like, this is the same night. This is just a little while. Well, I do like that progressively she does, like, just in appearance, her appearance becomes almost less human, more severe. Yeah. You know, she becomes more more pale more you know her hair gets pulled back rather than at the start you know she's just this you know friendly looking young woman and she becomes very again very sinister looking as as we progress throughout those scenes you know from the white turtleneck to the button down yeah interesting yeah um do you have any final thoughts I kind of hit on this already in terms of final thoughts, just that I'm excited to watch this over and over again. It's a, it's a movie that um, I feel like I want to revisit every so often because I'm going to see something new or learn something new from it. Mm-hmm. And I really appreciate that. And to get to watch it over and over again within the context of whatever Jordan Peele is working on next <laughs> is also going to be really exciting. He's a, He's a filmmaker that um, has demonstrated both a real love and a skill for the genre. And um, he's 
yeah, he's one of the most exciting directors working in horror right now. And he's somebody that I want to watch more of. And I'm really excited to start to see some of the scholarships surrounding his work. Again, as a film school nerd, um, he's the type of director that I would have liked to have written about. And so I'm really excited to read um, the analysis, to read other people's thoughts and reactions to what he's doing as well. Cool. This is probably my favorite movie so far that we've done for the show. I loved it when it came out. I think it's a 10 out of 10 movie. Um, Anybody can watch it and appreciate what's happening. We kind of deep dived into it. But I think even if you were not looking as closely, it's still a movie that can be very enjoyable. I read that Jordan Peele named this movie Get Out because of a experiences that he's had in the theater with other black folks yelling get out at the (laughs) get out at the screen um during multiple movies i mean it's an experience that he's had so i thought that was really cool like to kind of make that an homage because so often in movies you see something happening you're like get out get out get out get out well in this one this is literally what's happening so um i it's been my favorite so far that we've done I can't talk enough about how I think how good I think Jordan Peele is as a filmmaker, um, as a writer, as a director. Um, can't wait to see more. I can't wait to eventually do Us, though I feel like I am going to need to do some studying before I watch it again <laughs> and before I try to even attempt to analyze it because there's just so much going on. So definitely 100% if you can get your hands on Get Out, which I'm sure you can. I'm probably on streaming and everything. Watch it watch it again, watch it a third time, you'll probably still see new stuff afterwards. I think that's it for me. I I like feel like I could keep going on, but um, I'm out of notes. So, <laughs> <laughs> And I guess I'll just throw a little PSA in at the end because this is important to me. Like if you're if you're watching this movie as a white person and it makes you start to think about your place in the world, don't let this movie be the end of your work. Like, let this movie inspire you to read more and learn more and do more. There are tons of resources out there, and maybe we can throw some in the show notes to get you started. But um, yeah, if this if this makes you start to realize your place in the world or question your place in the world, um, don't don't just call it a one and done. It it starts here. It doesn't end here. Definitely, I I absolutely agree. Thanks for listening to Attack of the Final Girls. Find us online at attackofthefinalgirls.com, Attack of the Final Girls on Instagram, and on Twitter at Final Girls Pod. Our theme music is by House Ghost and available on Rad Girlfriend Records. Don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. And tell your friends about us. I'm Julia. And I'm Teresa. Until next time, stay scary. Stay scary.